This evening is a little bit of an experiment. Uh, Pecha Kutcha is a very interesting format. Um, the idea is that the speakers are given uh, 20 slides, each of duration 20 seconds, to explain a topic of their choice. Um, the, f the idea originated in Japan and it's been used by a number of designers around the world as a, a way of showing off their work and um, their expertise in communicating. Now, here at Science Oxford, we like to communicate science, so we thought uh, anything designers can do, uh, we'd like to have a go at. Right, hello, I am Sammy, and I have had the funny title of talking about talking about science, as most people have found out today. Uh, basically, uh, my name is Sammy, as I've already said. <laughs> I'm a research and development engineer and that is more or less, well that's me, um, more or less that means that I end up melting and burning a lot of stuff at work, which is more or less a good thing to do most of the times, but sometimes not so good depending on how expensive what you burnt is. Uh, living in Oxford is a very good thing for somebody like me because you get a lot of this happening all around you. Uh, yesterday I went to Brooks, there was a lecture about how great life is these days. And you don't get enough of that these days, but it was a good one. However, and this is where the slide is supposed to turn. <laughs> you do get a few lectures that tend to induce a few yawns as well. Uh, everybody knows him. Uh, yeah, so sometimes that happens and that sort of inspired me to talk about the whole thing, that it does not have to be that difficult, it does not have to be boring because I think it's all about how you present these things and so I thought I will do a little presentation about how to talk about science and when you're doing how and what you're actually presenting and basically that's the whole inspiration and that's why I'm doing this presentation. So how is basically how you look and how you present and there are a lot of ways you can look. You can be whatever you like. Uh, personally, I've gone for the mad scientist look today, and uh, which works sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it is quite important because the first thing somebody will see is what you look like. And no matter how good you are, you can't take it away. It sometimes helps to go in character. As you can see James May doing here. Uh, obviously do not pretend to be the stick because stick doesn't talk and the most important thing about giving a talk is talking so anyways yeah you can have a little character going or you can be yourself you can have a mad scientist look you can be something like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs and that works for whoever you are it's up to you now the one thing people will respond to when you are actually talking about anything really is how passionate you are, how excited you are, how happy you are talking about that thing and that's where I mean this is a really good example if you can actually see him over there he's actually really really happy about whatever he's talking about and the other thing is he's also got this really good grin on his face and that basically inspires you it's just human nature if you're really happy if you see a couple of people talking about something and they're really happy you just really want to know what they're talking about and I think that will work in your favor if you are ever giving a presentation about anything science related and secondly 
the other part of my presentation is actually the content you present. And to do that, you obviously have something in mind that you want to talk about, which can be mathematical, scientific, chemical, rocket science, anything really. But how you prepare that content is up to you. you hopefully, you are an expert in this. Even if you're not, it does help in how you present that material. And for that, no matter how good you are, it is quite important to do your research. And here's a couple of things that you can use these days. A chair, a table, and a monitor, sometimes internet. Uh, everything is not available on the internet, especially when you are doing your research. Uh, but yeah. Secondly, very, very important, you have to keep it as simple as possible. Really, really simple. There is that whole new story about Russia using pencils in space, whereas America developed a million dollar ballpoint to do so, which is actually false. But yeah. Another thing you can, you have to present is you have to make people see what you see in that topic. You have to make them look at it the way you see that thing. And that is quite important. It's not the easiest of things to do. But if you are able to do that, I think that's quite good. You can use visual aids. You can make them interesting or boring, depending on which way you look at it. That's actually a shirt I saw in one of baby mother care styled shops. Don't ask me why I was there. Uh, uh, so yeah, you can use visual aids, which always helps. Now, sometimes you may not have visual aids, but you can always take your own visual aids. You can cause <coughs> explosions to happen, or you can just take a can of Coke and put some Mentos in it, something similar to that. But create a bang, make it exciting, make it look like something is going on, because that will touch your audience. Now, another thing is you have to be honest. Uh, string theory, anybody know string theory here? It's one of the most difficult things in the world. And sadly, it's true. Nobody knows what it means. And that's basically what this slide is saying, that you have to be honest. You can have a theory. You can have an idea. But if you don't know what it means, it's fine. It's OK to accept that. Another, another thing you have to think is OK is criticism. This is basically telling you how an airplane flies. And the way it works is you can have three responses to a critical question. You have the right response over there, you have the wrong one, and the very, very wrong one. Uh, another thing which hopefully I haven't done too bad today is be slightly funny. It does help. Do not use any of these jokes because they are horrible. But yeah, it does make a good sense to make it slightly comical, slightly light, so people do enjoy your lecture as well. And most of all, make it exciting, make it fun. And that's it. That's me, all from me. I can take any questions if you have. Thank you very much. Right. Um, I'm not going to talk about riding roller coasters because that's boring if you don't like riding roller coasters. I'm going to talk about the engineering and the science behind them because that's why I love them. I used to be terrified of roller coasters, but I've been fascinated by them um, since I was about three. Um, I think they're beautiful things. Um, there's so much engineering and technology in them which you wouldn't necessarily recognise or know was there unless you uh, have become a nerd about them like I have. Um, this is a guy throwing a ball. He took it with a long exposure in his, in his um, camera. When you throw any object, it will make this shape in the, in the air. It, it sometimes will be a bit tighter, sometimes will be a bit longer. But it's always this shape. 
And when you go in that shape, um, you're weightless. It's because you're falling at the same rate which gravity um, pulls you towards the Earth. This is called a vomit comet. It's um, what they train astronauts in. And it's a plane which goes up into the air and then goes into free fall. And so they're falling at the same rate as the plane. So they have no weight. So they're just floating inside the plane and it goes up and down, up and down. It's the same thing. It's called the vomit comet because about half, half of the people are sick when they do it, which is nice. Um, <laughs> that's Oblivion at Alton Towers, which was advertised as the first uh, vertical drop roller coaster, which is a lie. It was 87 and a half degrees. And the reason for that is you go up into the same shape. Um, so you're actually more weightless if you go at 87 and a half degrees than if you went in, in pure freefall. Because if you're in freefall, then you would have um, friction from the air pushing you upwards so you're not actually falling. Um, a new fashion in roller coasters is to do something called a past vertical um, drop, which is what this is. It's, it's 112 degrees this way, which is a bit of like it's really only 68 degrees in that way. So you don't get more weightless, but what we do get is the psychological factor because you're, you're looking further backwards than you are forwards. Psychology is um, a huge in uh, modern roller coaster design. These, these guys, you sit down, your legs are dangling, um, so you're much closer to the floor. Which means you're going much. You feel like you're going much faster, even though you're going at the same speed as you would if you'd be sat on the top of a track. Um, compare that to being in a sports car or on top of a double-decker bus. You feel like you're going uh, faster in a sports car than you would do on a bus. Um, another example of psychology. Uh, that's a U-shaped roller coaster, so it goes up and up there. And when the when the train reaches the top here, it actually wobbles a little bit, like um, the wings do in a plane. But th that's the, it, if it didn't, then it would it would collapse. Um, people see it in the queue and they think, "Wow, that's going to collapse. I don't like the look of that." Um, but it works. Um, the track is not actually the shape that needs to be this, this um, parabola shape. It's actually the, the train which, which goes on the track, which is why the top of that is flat, because uh, at the top it's upside down, so the riders are going to go in that shape rather than the track. So um, sometimes it's a bit flat. Um, the first loop was invented in 1895, but it was a, it was a circle. It used to um, snap people's necks because the forces at the bottom were, were much too high. And so they realized that if you've got a big radius at the bottom and a small radius at the top, the g-forces are constant all the way around the loop. So you're not going to break anyone's neck, which is obviously good. Roller coasters need a lot of energy in order to go around the loop because loops are high. You can't just go here and then go in a loop. Um, the old way of doing that was to have a chain which pulled the roller coaster slowly to the top of a big hill at the top. We're kind of reaching the limit of that now because by the, top, by the time you get to the top now, the chain is almost not strong enough to lift its own weight. So you need to launch the roller coaster like they do on a um, aircraft carrier. They use the same technology. It's um, compressed air and um, it uh, some, through some clever hydraulics shoots um, a cable all the way down the track there. It pulls the plane along. There's a roller coaster doing the same thing. I'm not going to talk about that anymore though because the interesting thing here is these bits here. They're made of copper and on the bottom of the uh, roller coaster is some things which go over the top which are made of aluminium. If you know anything about physics, then um, eddy currents uh, might interest you because as the, as the train goes over here, it creates a magnetic force which creates electric force which slows it down at constant speed. G-forces are very dangerous but very fun. Um, we can take them well in this direction and on your back. If the blood goes into your brain though, it's very dangerous. This thing called red out and it, it's very bad. And also if you get too many in your front, um, it will cross your ribs. So flying roller coasters are normally in the air. Um, normal roller coasters do a lot of things on the floor. They twist around on the floor. Flying roller coasters like this, you're flying around like that. So all the curves are quite high in the air so you don't get too many forces on your chest. 
because you snap your ribs and that's not good. So how do you do a loop in there? You're already in the air, so you can't, you can't go any higher. You're already at the highest point. So they invented a thing called the pretzel loop. So what you do is you start at the top here, you go up, around the top. So I start, start off that way around, go around, up by this point, I'm upside down, uh, that way. And then come back over the top, so I'm at the top again. If that makes sense, you have to be quite visual to get that one. Old roller coasters were made from wood, so I'm sure you know that. About 100 years ago, um, they, didn't, they didn't have computers to design roller coasters. Um, so all the hills, you can see at the, the ends there, are kind of raised in the air. Uh, so that, you know when you go around uh, a corner in a car, you get pushed to the side? Same thing on a roller coaster. So they didn't want to um, push the track over, so all the hills are in the air. 1989, they um, copied the old-style wooden roller coasters, but in steel. So much higher, much faster. Also, they, could, they knew how to bank the track by that point, so they can go around really fast helixes, as they're called. It's just like a corkscrew that you'd uh, open the wine bottle with. That's one. I'm tired now. Um, modern wooden roller coasters. Um, a wood science now is, is much more advanced than it used to be. So we've got all of these twisty, turny bits. This is actually two roller coasters. Uh, one of them goes at the chain at the lift hill there. The other one is on the right-hand side. Um, because of computers, they've worked out how, exactly where each one will be, and these two actually race each other and almost have head-on collisions. That's a Mobius strip. There are, only, there are three roller coasters in the world which are a bit magic. You, they, um, you start off on one side of the station, and there's another roller coaster on the other side of the station, and you both go up, you never cross each other, but as if by magic, when you come back into the station, you're on the other side. It's, it's witchcraft, um, but it works. Mobius roller coasters, only three in the world, one's here. Which brings me on to the last point. Some of the best roller coasters in the world are in England. We've got one of the only three Mobius roller coasters. We've got the roller coaster with the most, which goes upside down the most number of times. We have got the first vertical drop roller coaster, as I've already um, said, isn't. Um, that was roller coasters, that's me. <laughs>
Barbara McClintock, uh, performed actually in Italian, a language I don't speak, but the actress Francesca Fava was so wonderful that um, it was a, a, a made a great impression on me nonetheless. So I came back and said, I would write a play about Dorothy Hodgkin, and fortunately the museum uh, had a bit of money for this bust of Dorothy and they had a bit left over so we could fund it as a professional production and the Diamond Light Source uh, down the road near Didcot uh, put up a little extra money um, and it meant we could go ahead and uh, do the thing professionally. But first I had to write it, so here I am sitting at my desk thinking how on earth am I going to turn a 400 word book about Dorothy Hodgkin into a 40-minute one-woman show, which is about six or 7,000 words, I discovered, to my horror. Um, but I did it using mainly Dorothy Hodgkin's own words. So who was Dorothy Hodgkin? I expect um, I ought to uh, explain to you. She is Britain's only, she still is Britain's only female Nobel Prize winner for science. She won the prize in 1964 for discovering the structures of important biological molecules. She was also a mother of three children uh, and uh, had this scientific career at a time when it was extremely unusual for married women to have careers at all, let alone become Nobel Prize winning scientists. So in order to get this play down to um, dimensions that uh, would fit in the course of a, a fairly short evening, I decided to focus not on all the work that she'd done in her life, but just on the work she'd done to solve the structure of the penicillin molecule, which is what you see here. She did this during World War II at a time when her children were very small. Uh, there was a war on and her husband was, was away most of the time. So from a dramatic point of view, uh, there were lots of interesting angles to cover. And I then had to go out and try and find a director for the play. And on the left, you see Abby Wright, who's currently assistant directing on Frankenstein at the National Theatre. So I was extremely lucky to get her in an, in an uh, unemployed moment. And she went out and found for me the actress Miranda Cook, who you see on the right, um, who turned out to be absolutely perfect for the role. So I was extremely fortunate. We then went into rehearsal. And um, the, the many interesting um, problems encountered along the way, one being that Miranda had never done any science, even at school, and the play had a number of experiments in. So here you see her uh, grinding stuff in a pestle on mortar on the left and trying to make sense of an X-ray goniometer on the right, which were all um, episodes that took place in the course of the play. And we also had to turn the Oxford University Museum of Natural History's lecture theatre into something that looked like a real theatre with theatre lighting. And as they didn't really have anywhere to hang up theatre lighting, that was all an equally interesting challenge. But we had a wonderful team um, working on the show and, and putting it together was a, a fantastic experience for me. Uh, and we also used, uh, we had a designer on board um, and we used projections to convey both changes of mood and changes of place. This shows the, a projected image of the ceiling of a room in the University Museum, uh, which is the room in which she did actually begin her scientific career. And so the night duly came. Uh, we had a lovely crowd, as you can see. 
and uh, over on the left of the picture in the red jacket you can just see Dorothy Hodgkin's sister Diana who came all the way from Toronto uh, both to see the play and to unveil the bust of Dorothy Hodgkin uh, which uh, was the original purpose of the evening. So there is now if you go to the museum one bust of a woman in the court of the museum along with all the other uh, busts of eminent men like um, uh, Galileo and Darwin and all the rest of them. Well, having done it once and put in such a lot of work, we thought we really ought to take this show on the road. And we were very lucky that we were accepted onto the programme of the Manchester Science Festival, um, the Twilight Talks programme of the University of Bristol, and uh, Otley Science Festival was another one. And we also booked ourselves venues in Cambridge and York um, so that we could carry on um, taking the play to different places. And we did that in the autumn. Um, but my life changed quite a lot because I hadn't really budgeted for a tour, tour manager, so I ended up having to be the tour manager myself, uh, which also involved uh, designing the, all the print, the flyer and the programme and getting them printed uh, and organising all the publicity and organising all the ticket sales and lying awake at night worrying about whether anybody would come. And also on the days when we were doing the show, I ended up with the job of um, stage manager, which involved trying to remember exactly where on the bookcase every single book and every single piece of glassware went because they were all used at particular points in the show and the actress had to know exactly where to put her hand on each thing. So I, I learnt a lot. I also carried a lot of very heavy things and my arm is still not quite the same. And um, the performances duly took place. Um, and we were, we were very pleased with the reception that we had everywhere. We were working in, in small theatres with audiences of about 80 or 100 people, but in most places we were full or nearly full, and people were moved to, to tears and laughter by Miranda's performance, which really was uh, astonishing. Um, and we were pleased to get some reviews. Um, I'm not quite sure what I think about the fact that the most glowing review that we got in the press was in the Morning Star, who were mainly interested in the fact that Dorothy had many communist connections, and so they were celebrating the fact that we had uh, raised the profile of a left-wing woman. They weren't terribly interested in her as a scientist, unfortunately. But they did say um, something like, um, uh, this is a must-see production, go hundreds of miles to see it, which was a very helpful thing of them to say, as we did have a couple more shows on at the time. Not, not sure how many people read it, but there we are. Um, and to conclude, I'm just going to read uh, a quote from Dorothy's own Dorothy, um, uh, Nobel speech, in which she said, which was really the purpose behind the whole exercise. This is really what I wanted to get across. The situation in which I find myself will not, I very much hope, be so uncommon in future as to require any comment or special treatment as more women carry out research in the same way as men. And that uh, um, wish on her part has only partly been fulfilled. And by putting on this play, I hope that we can inspire more young women to think about becoming scientists in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, following on from um, uh, women researchers, um, this is um, a scheme which is designed to um, promote research. Um, and um, it's basically asking the question, how can we provide the next generation of science researchers? Where are they going to come from? I'm hoping that at least some of the audience fall into these categories. Please really raise your hand if you are either a teacher, an early stage career researcher, or your interest in public engagement. 
Okay, well, that's not bad. That's about half of you. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through some of the advantages for pupils and some of the advantages for researchers um, in the scheme. Um, now, first of all, um, a lot of school pupils don't realize um, how many different careers there are um, uh, in science. Um, and um, a lot of organizations, um, sort of the RSC puts a lot of money into um, sort of funding careers based um, you know, things. And, and research and residence is one of those. Um, I think after a pupil sort of gets to talk to a researcher, um, they realize that um, the sort of skills that you learn in science, in science um, whether it's science at school or whether it's doing research at university or a research institution, all of those skills are actually important for practically any job you care to mention. When um, researchers go into schools, they go in for two or three days, and they sort of do talks and practical activities with the kids, um, and the kids are very interested in them as people, and they want to know what they're interested in, um, how they learn, all sorts of things about um, uh, the pupils. And um, if, you, if you go into a school and, and ask pupils who their sort of role models are, they're frequently not particularly um, sort of desirable role models. Um, and um, what um, research and residence does very effectively is it provides role models who are learners, role models who are scientists for pupils. Um, there are all sorts of um, learning skills which research and residence promotes in pupils. Um, the, uh, that picture in the middle is a, is a, is a placement um, where pupils went to a sort of crime scene that was set up in the university. Um, and um, they had to sort of solve a problem as to sort of, you know, what had gone on. Um, this is another placement um, where some pupils um, uh, did some research um, and uh, we've got schools in Northern Ireland, um, school in, uh, schools in Scotland, um, uh, we've had, you know, sort of um, placements all over the country. Um, research and residence is part of a whole load of um, sort of engagement schemes which you're probably aware of, things like triple science, um, STEM ambassadors, all those sort of schemes. And um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, um, it's, a, it's a sort of long-term scheme where kids actually get to develop a relationship um, with the researcher. Um, one of the most recent things, um, sort of new things in school, is this idea of doing an extended project in the sixth form. And um, a research and residence placement is, um, is really beneficial for that um, because the researcher can go in and um, talk to students about their projects, keep them realistic, um, give them some help. Um, that's a picture of me when I was a chemistry teacher. I've been a chemistry teacher for 15 years, although I'm, I'm now working for the Association for Science Education. And um, teachers really appreciate um, making links with research institutions and universities. Um, and we encourage the researchers to sort of maintain that relationship. Once they've done a placement, the teachers can phone them up and say, you know, can you supply us with some liquid nitrogen? And, and, and that sort of um, that relationship goes on. Um, We've had a lot of um, research, well, a lot of teachers really sort of um, registering because they want to do something for National Science and Engineering Week, um, which is a British Science Association um, sort of event that's coming up soon. Um, we are keen to um, arrange placements um, for uh, uh, researchers with disabilities and also for schools with pupils with special needs. Um, there's a, I'm arranging a placement in Southampton um, with somebody from the um, Oceanogra Oceanography Centre um, going into a, a special school. Um, 
Benefits to researchers. Um, researchers love talking about their um, research projects. I'm surprised not, we're not inundated tonight with loads and loads of researchers wanting to, to give um, talks on their research because they absolutely love doing it. Um, and the difficulty is just getting them to um, explain it without using jargon and without using too many syllables. Um, it's really good for re researchers to be seen as a people person and have communication skills when they apply for jobs. Um, this is a placement that um, took place in November and um, as you can see, uh, Professor um, Lord Robert Winston um, was involved and he's really keen on encouraging um, the next generation of science researchers. Um, if you are a researcher and you apply for the scheme, then um, we can either um, match you with the school which is near to you or you could choose to go back to your old school or you could pick a school which is near you um, and it's um, a lot of the motivation is actually just doing something giving something back um, we get terrific feedback from researchers um, we've had over 3,000 successful placements in the last 15 years um, and the researchers um, have a great time and you can see there um, the researcher and, and the four students um, you know that they've obviously got a good relationship What sort of things actually happen? Well, the researchers can go in and do practical work. Um, they can help with science clubs. Um, they can um, help write resources, all sorts of things. I mean, really, we, we try and encourage um, researchers and teachers to be as innovative as possible when they do um, these placements. Um, we've got a website um, for people to register. and um, it's, uh, It doesn't take very long to register, so if you are a researcher, and you're interested in public engagement, or if you're a teacher and you want somebody to come into your school, then just go to the um, researchersandresidents.ac.uk website and um, register online. And um, those are my details. Thank you very much for listening. And my name is Ian Griffin, and my presentation is going to be about what we know about the universe in 20 slides. The universe was created in a giant explosion, the Big Bang, 13.75 million years ago. We know this because we can see galaxies moving away from us and we can observe the explosion's aftermath as no all-pervasive background radiation. Small fluctuations in the cosmic background give insight into the early universe and show the seeds of the very first galaxies. Galaxies are gravity-bound collections of stars which pervade the universe. They can be spiral, elliptical, or irregular in shape. The Hubble telescope has studied dim galactic light from near the dawn of time. Thanks to it, we now know that galaxies began to form 400 million years after the Big Bang. Galaxies come in different shapes and different sizes. Some, like this, are spirals, teeming with cold dust and hot gas. The spiral shape of galaxies is caused by density waves, gravity-driven compressions which generate waves of star formation. Stars are born. They mature, they grow old, and eventually they die. Stars are the building blocks of galaxies. They're chemical factories. They shine by burning nuclear material at their cores. And these reactions have created the majority of the chemical elements that we see in the universe today. The bright point of light you can see in this picture is a dying star, or a supernova. When large stars die, they explode violently and for a few weeks can outshine an entire galaxy. 
Shockwaves from the explosion blast nearby dust and gas, causing it to compress violently, giving rise to the next generation of stars. Supernovae are terribly important. When stars die, they don't just disappear. The gas from which they were made is returned to the interstellar medium to seed the next generation of stars in the ultimate act of cosmic recycling. This is the Crab Nebula, a star which was seen to explode in 1054 by Chinese astronomers and which is now, nearly a, million, uh, nearly a millennium later, revealed by telescopes to be a beautiful object in the sky. But what about smaller stars like the Sun? How do they die? Rather than exploding, when their nuclear reactions cease, they puff off their outer layers to form beautiful ser spherical clouds of gas called planetary nebulae, whose shapes and contours are formed by the gravitational and magnetic forces that affect them as they die. We've talked about star death, but how are stars born? This is the Orion Nebula, a cloud of dust and gas, an enormous stellar nursery. Inside its swirling dense clouds, there are a new generation of stars slowly forming. Their birth marked by bright stars emerging from the murky darkness of the nebula. Inside star-forming regions like the Orion Nebula, there is chaos. Nearby exploding stars cause shock waves which smash into the clouds and compress them. Compressed clouds slowly reduce in size under gravity and their cores heat up. Eventually, nuclear reactions start and stars are born. The birth of a star is marked by the onset of nuclear fusion at the heart of the newly compressed cloud of gas. This close-up of the Orion Nebula shows protoplanetary disks, pro proplids, nascent solar systems in which radiation from the newly born star is just blasting away the dust cocoon and they're emerging from the darkness and in a few thousand years, new stars will emerge in this picture, shining brightly amidst the darkness. As time passes, the dust thins and planets form. And we can see this when we look at other stars. This is Fomalhaut, a star in the southern sky. And in this picture, we can see the remnants of the dusty um, disk of gas, but we can also see a planet in orbit around the star. And using Hubble, we can actually view the planet. There you can see in a couple of years apart, the pictures. So we can now observe planets around other stars, but we can do more than that. We can actually observe the atmospheres of planets going around other stars. And by we can do that using telescopes like Hubble. And by studying the light of a, a, a planet as it goes across its parent star, we can see what the atmosphere of that planet is made of. So we're studying planets around other stars, but what about our own star, the Sun? It's an average star, and there are many millions like it in our own galaxy, and many billions like it in the universe. Knowing this, we must surely question our uniqueness. So, if we're not unique, how do we go about finding life in space? Can we learn anything about our solar system and our home planet that can inform our searches for life elsewhere in the universe? Thirty years ago, inspired by Carl Sagan, a space probe called Voyager took a family portrait of our solar system from beyond the orbit of Neptune. You can see from the resulting mosaic that even from relatively nearby on a cosmic scale, planets are hard to observe. Carl Sagan wrote of this image, our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. To my mind, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. This picture, taken from the surface of Mars, shows how Martians would see the Earth-Moon system. To them, ours is a double planet, Earth and Moon traveling together through space as they orbit the Sun. From Mars, Sagan's pale blue dot has become a vivid marble, but from this distance, life is still not apparent. 
From lunar distance, Earth's blue marble has become an ocean planet with continents, seas and clouds. From here we can see vegetation and lights from cities. It's really only from this distance that life on Earth becomes apparent. And this illustrates the next great challenge for astronomers. From close up, we can also see the thin atmosphere of our planet. This slither of gas sustains life and protects us from cold and radiation from deep space. Imagine how difficult it is to detect an atmosphere as thin as this around a small planet that's as dim as ours from a distance of the nearest stars. It's a huge task. And as we look up at the sky, each clear night, we see a galaxy, 100,000 million stars, many of which might be teeming with life. The search for life in the universe is the ultimate challenge. It is hard. And when we do discover other life, the question about what we will do with the knowledge will remain. Thank you. So before I begin, I'll just introduce myself very quickly because um, I'm not a synthetic biologist. I'm a designer, uh, call themselves a speculative designer, um, and that will hopefully become clear what that is when I show the presentation. Um, but, um, but for the last few years, I've been working with synthetic biologists, and uh, I'm just going to sort of show you my work. Um, so first, I'm going to explain what synthetic biology is because probably most people haven't heard the term. Um, so. This image here is a painting by a microbiologist called Robert Goodsell, and it's a cross-section through um, an E. coli bacteria. And all the blobs you can see there are individual biomolecules and proteins, and the orange is uh, DNA and RNA. Um, and the green kind of arc is, a, uh, is the membrane of the cell. And synthetic biologists want to use the, the molecules inside the cell um, to do useful things. And they see uh, a, a strong parallel between computational technologies that we used to today and um, the, the processes that happen inside living organisms. So proteins and genes are analogous to electronic components like transistors at the bottom of the scale. Um, cells are like computers in the middle of the scale. And tissues are like networks of computers like the internet. And this is an example of a synthetic biology um, uh, project. And what you see here is a petri dish containing E. coli bacteria. And they've been programmed by a team of synthetic biologists so that when they detect light, they produce a black protein. Um, and in a way, they become photographic film that can fix an image. Um, and that project isn't done by uh, old men with beards in labs, it's done by students like this who are taking part in the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition, which is a mouthful, and it's held at um, MIT every year. And about a thousand undergraduate students take part, and they spend ten weeks over the summer engineering bacteria to do something useful or interesting. So I've been fascinated by this, and I was lucky enough to join the Cambridge University iGEM team in 2009 with another designer called Alexandra Daisy Ginsberg. And we worked with the team um, to help them think about how their work could connect to the world outside. So we're designers, we're interested in technology, but what does this new biological technology mean? This is us on the first day of our kind of collaboration. We're in the lab together, and the students are coming from engineering, chemistry, and biology. None of them study synthetic biology. And that meant that we could learn um, on their kind of a two-week intensive crash course how to manipulate cells, how to take uh, small bits of DNA, put them into cells, how to design them to do what we want them to do. 
After that crash course, the students, um, about six of them, um, had to decide what they wanted to make, and this is what they did over ten weeks. They got E. coli to produce different coloured pigments, which are visible to the naked eye. These are actual the results of their project. And so they did this by taking genes from organisms that exist, um, so lycopene is found in tomatoes, and put them into E. coli so they could express. And this is an example of the sort of application they were thinking of. Um, so they were designing E. coli that was sensitive to arsenic, or some other toxin. If, um, if you wanted to know whether a sample of water contained arsenic, you could drop these bacteria in. If they turn green, then the water's safe to drink. If they turn red, then don't drink. Um, this is a product that Daisy and I designed based on the same technology. It's a, uh, an application for cheap personalised disease monitoring. It's called the Scatalog. You can buy it from a supermarket. It contains E. chromi bacteria in it. Um, when you ingest the bacteria, they form a permanent colony in your gastrointestinal tract, uh, the same as any other bacteria, and they monitor constantly for the chemical signals that indicate the presence of a wide range of diseases. So um, it, the, the standard model can, uh, can be um, used to detect the, the standard range of diseases, but it could also be uh, t um, tailored to your genetic susceptibility. And when it detects a disease, it produces an easily visible coloured output, which if you think one step ahead, should be coming up on the next slide. <laughs> now. <laughs> um, so this should prompt you to go seek medical advice. Um, so, so when Daisy and I came up with this idea, we were a bit sceptical, we thought it was a bit silly, but actually um, we began to think there's a pretty accurate depiction of how synthetic biology might enter people's lives in their everyday. Because biology isn't like uh, computer technologies, um, it's not slick, it's not going to get iPads and things like that. I'm going to talk about this now. Um, this is another project, it's a collaboration with a team of synthetic biologists, um, one of whom, Ben Davis, is a lab here at Oxford. And his team are attempting to create uh, living organisms from unusual chemistries not found in nature. Um, they call them chemical cells, and um, they're not alive in the traditional sense, but they mimic um, some of the properties of living things. So what you're looking at is a chemical reaction that looks like a living organism. So I imagined where this line of research could lead and made a short film set in the future. The first true chemical cell approved for use in the healthcare industry is a simple construction. It is manufactured by forming an inorganic membrane around particles of a given drug compound. Only under specific conditions does the membrane become porous, releasing small amounts of the drug where it is required. Advances in metabolic engineering led to the second generation of chemical cells. Lying dormant inside the patient for several weeks, they monitor the condition of their surroundings. When triggered, they are capable of manufacturing a specific drug, releasing it as and when it is required. The third generation of chemical cells are equipped with the autocatalytic machinery necessary to replicate themselves. Useful for treating chronic conditions, they maintain a constant population in the patient over extended periods of time. By reproducing in pairs the fourth generation of chemical cells, their offspring that combine the metabolic processes of both their parents. Often used when a patient's condition does not respond to a known compound, these offspring will produce novel varieties of drugs, some of which might have a positive effect. The fifth and most recent generation of chemical cells are characterized by one important additional feature. If these cells determine that the drug they are producing is ineffective, then they make themselves the target of the patient's immune system, 
You should treat the cell like any other pathogen. Period. This ability to die subjects the chemical cells to a form of natural selection, allowing their evolution towards a more effective treatment of the patient's condition. The medicines described here represent key milestones in the development of chemical cell therapeutics, but they are also the increments on a scale between non-living and living things, the cellularity scale. This is used in the pharmaceutical industry to classify chemical cells for regulatory purposes. But we prefer to see it as the root to a new tree of life, the branches of which will doubtless bear the fruits of our future health and well-being. That film was exactly seven slides worth long. Um, so what I cannot create, I do not understand. Um, these words by Richard Feynman um, are often quoted by synthetic biologists. And in order to understand genetics, we need to create new genomes of our own design and see what they do. In order to understand life, we need to make some of it and see how it works. And I think in the next few years and decades, our understanding of life will be changed, um, not by studying things that already exist, but by the things that we make. Thank you very much.